Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. We've been walking through uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And this book, I think you could fairly summarize, is about God's faithfulness to his people Israel. And, and one of the ways that God proves his faithfulness to his people is by allowing us to compare Israel's leaders. And some of those leaders prove faithful to God, but many do not. And whether Israel's leaders prove faithful or not, God always remains faithful. And we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 14. By uh, way of reminder, Saul is the first king of Israel. Israel had been asking for a king for quite some time, and God finally gave them one. And by outward appearances, he's a great choice. Tall, dark, and handsome. Upon being anointed king, Saul responds with humility He acts decisively and wisely to rally the army to save the men of Israel in Jabesh-Gilead, which calls his naysayers to actually reaffirm their commitment to him as king. Uh, And instead of punishing those who were his naysayers, Saul forgives them and gives all glory to God for the victory. Now this is how Saul started out. He started out well. Very well. But then things stalled. And by the time we pick up here in 1 Samuel 14, Saul has been king for a couple of years, and after a fine start, the majority of the time of his rule has been given over to the status quo. Marked by stagnation, Saul's folly, and Saul's disobedience. And, and while Saul is on this slow spiral down, his son Jonathan is proving to be a real gem. Jonathan is humble, he's obedient, he's a godly man, the kind of person you would just love to be king of Israel. Now our text falls into three parts. Uh, we're first of all going to take a look at the faithfulness of Jonathan under pressure Compare that to the faithlessness of Saul under pressure and then close out by looking at the faithfulness of God's grace through it all, whether it's to Israel or Saul or Jonathan and then a few closing applications. Um, My professor once told me one of the best sermons he ever preached was on the book of Hebrews. And what he said is he did something unusual and that is he got up And he just read the whole sermon of Hebrews. Because Hebrews is basically a sermon. And afterwards, people came up and said, Pastor, that's the best sermon you've ever preached. (laughs) And as we've been going through 1 Samuel, we've been, you know, reading longer passages. And that's not common for us. Because oftentimes as pastors, we like to put more of our words out there. Um, But we're going to, I think you've seen Chris do this and some of the other pastors 
we're going to read a longer section, and I'm going to stop and make some comments, sometimes extend it and other times brief, but we really want to give you the opportunity to see the full context in some of these larger passages. So that's how we're going to walk through uh, chapter 14 here. So first, the faithfulness of Jonathan under pressure. Uh, Starting at verse 1, we see Jonathan's active faith. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. I'm gonna, this is going to be one of my longer comments. <laughs> Interestingly, Saul doesn't tell his father what he's about to do. It's, it's actually more than interesting. It's, it's very telling. Uh, If you review the previous chapters, though Saul was able to assemble an army of 330,000 Israelites that delivered the men of Jabesh-Gilead, he had no plan of what to do with the army after that single victory. And so for over two years, Saul made no preparation for this standing army to defend the people of Israel, despite the fact that they're raiding bands of Philistines throughout the land. And at the end of chapter 13, we learn that the Israelites had become so dependent upon the Philistines' blacksmiths for making farm equipment and weapons that they couldn't supply their own army. And Saul didn't set aside a single plan to develop blacksmiths in Israel to make weapons. And so what Saul does here is he sends the entire army home in the previous chapter. Upon hearing that, his son Jonathan... Uh, attacks the Philistine garrison at Geba. And he wins a mighty victory. And Geba is actually the hill on which Saul and Jonathan are going to make this next attack. Now, in all likelihood, the reason why Jonathan attacked was out of frustration with his father's refusal to act and possibly with a desire to force Saul's hand to reassemble the army of Israel. But the problem was, by this point, the people's confidence in Saul was shaken by his lack of leadership. And so this is the context of verse 1. So it's little wonder why Jonathan did not tell his father when he was planning a second attack on a Philistine garrison. So let's pick up in verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate tree at Migron. Now, if you look at your footnote, there's a translation that that could be translated, Saul was sitting under the pomegranate tree near the cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priests of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sinah. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, for it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let's take a brief pause and make a couple observations. We see while Jonathan is on the move, what's Saul doing? He's sitting on his rear underneath a pomegranate tree. 
The people's faith in Saul was so shaken that by this point, even the elite soldiers of Israel, those 3,000 men that Saul did not dismiss because they were the king's special forces, his private bodyguard, even, at, even those men start to desert him so that by chapter 14, only 600 men remain. That means 2,400 of the special force soldiers of the king's guard have gone AWOL. Saul's rejections are adding up here. His own son is acting without his knowledge. His men are abandoning him. And he's sit, sitting with a rejected priestly line of Eli. Look at verse 3. Remember Eli and Eli's sons? You have Phineas, that meat-loving woman chaser. And then you have Ahijah, who, who's now wearing the high priestly ephod. He's serving as high priest. But the writer carefully reminds us that this guy is Ichabod's brother. Now, why does he point that out? Well, if you remember, Ichabod was named upon his birth in 1 Samuel 4, 21, and his name means no glory because the glory had departed from Israel. And so here's Saul sitting under a pomegranate tree with a rejected priesthood. He's a rejected captain, and even his son seems determined to to go off behind his back. And while Saul stews in self-pity, Jonathan acts in faith. And the faithfulness of Jonathan is not passive, it is active. Let us go over to this Philistine garrison. But we'll see it's not only active, his faith is also contagious. Look at verse 6 and 7. The faithfulness of Jonathan is contagious. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, again, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Wow, what a contrast. Saul had it all. God's anointing, early victories. He had a standing army ready to follow his lead. But because he gave into the status quo and to fear, there's hardly anyone left to follow him. But Jonathan had very little by comparison. It's just him. But because he leads with courage and faith, his armor bearer is willing to follow him wherever he goes. But as we move on here, we say, is, is this faith of Jonathan reckless? And as we read the passage, I think we'll discover it's not a reckless faith. It's courageous. Courageous, not presumptuous. See, many in our day think that, that for faith to work, it can't leave any room for doubt. But notice Jonathan says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, perhaps, See, faith is not to be confused with arrogance. Faith does not dictate to God. Faith recognizes that there's always a degree of ignorance when God has not given a clear decree in a specific situation. And while real faith always has this lack of situational certainty, that lack of certainty doesn't cancel out the faith and make it false or impure, but it actually makes it quite exciting. Ralph Davies says, says it this way, that, that, in, that uh, uncertain faith doesn't, make, doesn't cancel it. It makes it, it, it makes it exciting. Excuse me. 
We see this with Jonathan and with his armor bearer. Who knows what God may do? Perhaps he may act. And so Jonathan's faith is contagious, not because he's certain God will act in this situation in the way he wants. Rather, Jonathan's faith is contagious because he's certain of who God is. He's a good God. He is faithful. And he has made a covenant with his people. And so when Jonathan refers to the Philistines as these uncircumcised, he's, he's recalling to memory that God is a covenant God of Israel, that he is with us. He is trustworthy and good and powerful. He has shown how he can save in the past, whether by many or by few. And he often gets more glory by saving by few. So let's go. And his armor bearer follows him. So Jonathan's faith is, is active, it's contagious. And third, it, it's, not, it's not a circumstantial faith. It's faith in God, not faith in an, advan- in an advantageous situation. Notice in verse eight, then Jonathan said, behold, we'll cross over to the men, we'll show ourselves to them, and if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field and among the people, The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. The faithfulness of Jonathan brings about a great deliverance of evil. Now the situation here is anything but ideal. Actually, it is terrible. I mean, it's really bad. The enemy has the high ground. The cliff that he must climb down is called Sinah, which means thorny. And the cliff on the other side that he must climb up is called Bozes, which means slippery. How would you like to climb that? And you may be asking, what is Jonathan thinking? Like if you've ever gone to a military academy, this is the worst plan of attack. It is not a good idea to attack from a disadvantaged low ground. And worse yet, to give up the fact that you're coming, and to hail and say, hey, just so you know, we're here, we're coming, (laughs) and to give away your strategic um, uh, privacy. But this is exactly what Jonathan does in verse 11, and you're saying, what what is going on here? Well, we know that that many Israelites were deserting the army. Uh, It may be that the Philistine thought that these two were deserters. And and in verse 12, some commentators think that when uh, the um, uh, the Philistine soldiers say, come up to us and we'll show you a thing, that they're merely trash talking. 
But others point out that it's possible that, that they were looking for defectors. And when they're saying, well, we want to talk to you about a thing. In other words, they want to talk about uh, the implications of a defection, maybe to turn them as spies. Either way, the Philistines knew that they were coming and they did not feel at all threatened by Jonathan or his armor bearer. But Jonathan changed their perspective after climbing up Old Slippery and uh, he took out the first Philistines and then with his armor bearer, a whole garrison of 20 men. And the result of Jonathan's faithfulness under pressure was that God caused a great panic in the Philistine army which would eventually lead to an Israelite victory. This is the faithfulness of Jonathan under pressure. It's a faith that was active. It's, it's contagious, not presumptuous. And it's not circumstantial, for it was faith in God, not in favorable circumstances. So let's turn now to the faithlessness of Saul under pressure. And we'll see four things, that, that Saul was stalled in self-pity. Saul was consumed by fear and insecurity. Saul was ultimately trumped by God, but lastly, Saul was re-exposed with deadening pride. Let's just walk through it. So first, Saul was stalled in self-pity. Look again at verses 1 through 5, where Saul's sitting under the pomegranate tree with the rejected priesthood and the rejected captain and a son who's determined to take action before, uh, behind his back. Unless you're tempted to think of joining in Saul's pity party, we must remember It wasn't Israel who first rejected Saul. Saul rejected his call to the people who had called him to lead as king. They asked for a king, and when he was anointed, the tribes of Israel quickly fell in line. But Saul rejected his call to lead them, to equip them, to prepare them, and instead he dismisses the army and kept only a small number of men for his personal detail. It wasn't Israel who rejected Saul. It was Saul who rejected Israel. And also, it wasn't God who rejected Saul first, but Saul rejected God. In verse 10, Samuel, the Lord's prophet, tells Saul, when you see these signs meet you, do whatever your hand finds to do, for the Lord is with you. Those were the last standing orders that Saul received from God. Do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And that is the words that Jonathan's still willing to act upon. And interestingly, those are almost the exact same words put into the mouth of Jonathan's armor bearer here in verse 7. The armor bearer said, do all that's in your heart. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And see, while Jonathan was able to maintain his courage at the words of a humble servant a human servant, Saul was not able to maintain his courage at the promise of a divine king. Instead of acting like the anointed one that he was, Saul was sitting down and living as the rejected one. Now we may be tempted to feel sorry for Saul and all the rejections he was enduring and to stagnate with him and join him in his pity party, but you should know that it was Saul who rejected God and his promises and thus failed to act. And it was Saul who rejected God's promises and panicked by offering unlawful sacrifices. But it was Jonathan who acted in faith and courage, while Paul stagnated in faithlessness that led to self-pity. 
But secondly, Saul is consumed by fear and insecurity, picking up in verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah and Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went out, went at that time with the people of Israel. So while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. And so Saul said to his priests, withdraw your hand. And then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. So Saul sees the Philistines in a panic, and they're beginning to disperse. And his first instinct is to ask, who broke rank from us? And even though he doesn't know for sure who was going out to pick a fight with the Philistines, as we'll see, he has his suspicions. Even if his suspicions are lodged deep within his guilty self-conscious. His second instinct is to call for the ark of God. Why? Well, apparently, he's still waiting for God's permission to lead to fight. And even though the last standing orders given by God through Samuel, which had not been directly retracted, was do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Finally here, while Saul is talking with the priests and the tumult in the camp increases, apparently Saul gets that message. It sinks in for suddenly he stops seeking for the Lord to reassure him and he tells his priests, stay your hand, which is another way of saying keep the ark here, and then he runs into battle and joins the fight. See, it took Jonathan to act on God's standing orders by faith before Saul repented of his fear and ran into battle. But until then, Saul's faithlessness was consumed by fear and insecurity. You know, as children, we've probably all had the experience of hiding behind our parents and making excuses, maybe claiming that we don't have permission to do something when mom and dad are really okay with it. We have permission, we just don't want to do it. But we aren't willing to admit that truth. And like an insecure child, Saul is refusing to act in faith, claiming he needed God's permission, but forgetting he already had it. His need to ask again and again doesn't point to any lack of communication on God's part, but only to a lack of willingness on Saul's part. Saul let his fears and insecurities lead him to seek God's permission and blessing for what God had already given him permission and blessing to do, to lead his people and to fight the battle. The faithlessness of Saul is rooted in deep self-pity and consumed with insecurity, but thankfully, thankfully, Saul's faithlessness is ultimately trumped by God. God doesn't wait for Saul to act. Pick up in verse 21. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. 
And so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Here God trumps not just Saul's faithlessness, but Israel's faithlessness. Here people who were hiding out and deserting and going over to the side of the Philistines suddenly took heart and joined ranks with the army of God's people. See, in grace, God works in spite of Saul's failures and Israel's cowardness, and he moves everyone to action. And it's important to note that he does not wait for a long, drawn-out repentance in order to work his deliverance. He works through people who repent immediately, even if imperfectly, by simply choosing to stop running in fear and instead to start fighting by faith. See, Saul's faithlessness is rooted in self-pity, not repentance, absorbed in insecurity, not trust, and yet God can trump all of it. Now, you might hope that, that this would change Saul's tune when he saw a great deliverance and the grace of God to work in spite of his fears, but notice what happens next. Saul's faithlessness is re-exposed in foolish pride, Pride that nearly cost him the life of his son. Picking up in verse 24, it says, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now Saul's attempt to cover his cowardness with brave words here so much bravado, as we will see, is as, as effective in covering his arrogance and cowardness as a fig leaf is in the Garden of Eden of covering Adam and Eve's shame. Picking up in verse 24, so none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten to, freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijalon. And the people were very faint the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox and his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Brief comment here. Saul's behavior and choices aren't all bad. Uh, like us, he's, he's a complex mixture of, 
of righteousness and folly. But here he's doing some good things by helping the people repent. And in verse 36, then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, well, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all of you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives and saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. I think he tips his hand there as to his suspicions as who it might be. But there was not a man among the people who answered Saul. That's a shocker. Pity the fool who responds to a madman. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation for Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. And so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. See, the faithfulness of Jonathan led to Israel's salvation, whereas the faithlessness of Saul led to Israel's trouble. This foolish vow, instead of mitigating shame for his cowardness, it only exposed his folly and deadly pride. And it caused Israel double trouble. It led Israel to being hard-pressed and unable to capitalize on their victory against the Philistines. It led to this ritual uncleanliness among the warriors, and it nearly led to the loss of Saul's son. Now we've contrasted the faithfulness of Jonathan that resulted in Israel's salvation with the faithlessness of Saul that resulted in Israel's hardship. But before we turn to application, we need to talk about the faithfulness of God's grace to Israel, to Saul, to Jonathan. First, let's look at the faithfulness of God's grace to Israel in verse 47. When Saul had taken up the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistine. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And Israel was, was saved. How gracious of God. We do well to remember the way God can use sinful leaders. In fact, it's his pattern. We do well to remember that this 
election. If God can use a buffoon like Samson to deliver his people, a fool like Saul, God can use foolish leaders to bless his people. I'm amazed at how God works for good through leaders that I wouldn't allow to babysit my kids. God is faithful to Israel despite their demand for a human king that would fail them. Secondly, God is also uh, faithfully gracious to Saul. Look at verse 48. And Saul did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of the army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached himself to him. And does anyone else think that this final press release on the life of Saul is far too generous? Despite Saul's failures, God allows him to be remembered for his successes. Now, what about Jonathan? How is God faithfully gracious to Jonathan? Faithful Jonathan. He would have made a wonderful king. A good and faithful leader to the end. Faithful through and through. No matter what it cost him personally. But we already know that Jonathan had been rejected as king in the rejection of Saul's dynasty. And maybe our questions fly, why couldn't Jonathan be king instead of Saul? Why did he have to be eliminated from contention for the throne? Why did he have to play second fiddle to David? Why does God work this way? Why, why this apparent waste of talent or at least an under-leveraging of his godliness? Such questions are normal, but as Ralph Uh, As Dale Ralph Davies points out, they're also very telling. See, in our minds, self-fulfillment, it's a personal right. Ingenuity, godliness, discipline should be crowned with status and success. But Jonathan seemed to know better. The kingdom was not Saul's, nor Jonathan's. It was Yahweh's. And a tragic life isn't tragic if lived for the glory of God. Now that's a grace that we all need to be reminded of. And some here tonight need to know that grace. It's a grace that Jonathan knew, a grace that Jesus Christ our Lord embodied, and a grace that we might have. And this grace is transforming. For like Jonathan, it brings true freedom. It enables us to rest contented in our circumstances and to happily and faithfully obey and follow the Lord no matter the consequences and no matter the cost. Two final applications. One, a warning, and one, an encouragement. First, the warning. Don't harden your heart by doubling down on your self-pity as Saul did. Repent instead 
Saul could have repented, only he refused. He chose worldly sorrow over a repentant heart. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are God's anointed. And even though God may discipline you, he will never reject you. God is with you. So go and do as you please. Act in faith and fight the good fight against your own personal sin. Fight for this community. Fight for your family in prayer and in godly obedience. Second, an encouragement. Look at what God is doing all around you despite your failures and follies. Stop trying to manipulate him like Saul was to get on board with your plan. Instead, join him in his work. And let God trump your faithlessness and bring victory. And when God does that, don't double down on your own folly and try to cover your own cowardness with brash words. Instead, simply admit and confess your sin to others. How much different this would have gone if Saul simply would have said to his men, men, forgive me for failing to lead you and then led him into battle. You and I have that opportunity. And so let's take encouragement from Jonathan, from Saul, from God's word. Let us pray. God, thank you for this time in your word. There's much to learn from it and we only skim the surface But we thank you, God, that your word is living and true. It's living and active, and it cuts to the deepest parts of our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us into men and women of faith, a faith that is active, that is contagious, a faith that is in you, not in our circumstances. But, Lord, we thank you that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful, and you can trump us in our faithlessness faithlessness, and still bring about great victory. And when you do that, please let us soften our hearts and simply repent instead of covering, instead of trying to hide our shame behind these fig leaves of silly things that we do and false vows that we make and things that we say to justify ourselves. We pray this for your glory, for the healing of your church and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.